enough, huh? <laughs> uh, this is the Commission on Aging and Adult Service. Uh, the Secretary, please call, do the roll call. President Gustavo Serena is excused. Vice President Katie Liu. Here. Commissioner Martha Knudsen. Commissioner Michael Pappas. Commissioner Teddy Vrijas. Here. Commissioner Jeremy Wallingberg. Present. Please note that Executive Director Shereen McSpadden is present. At this time, we ask that you please silence all electronic, electronics and sound producing devices. Before we start the meeting, I'd like to introduce our newest commissioner, Commissioner Martha. Uh, would you like to say a few words about yourself? Sure. Two minutes. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> two, two minutes. Um, thank you very much. My name is Martha Knudsen. I'm the new uh, commissioner. I was very honored uh, to be appointed by Mayor uh, London Breed. Um, I have um, been so interested in these issues ever since I uh, was on the Human Rights Commission when we uh, had a hearing on uh, LGBT senior issues. And uh, those were very unique issues at the time. Uh, what, and we, from that moment, it, that hearing, which conducted in about 2003, led to the task force on LGBT issues in the senior community. And then that, um, in turn, led to some really groundbreaking legislation. And I was so gratified, and it was so ironic, or whatever the word is, to see that these items that we had advocated for so many years ago, uh, three of them are on the agenda today. So uh, I, feel, I feel like I've done a full circle here in terms of the interests that I have. Um, I bring to this commission anything that I have. It's a real honor for me to work uh, again for the city. I uh, retired a couple of years ago from the district attorney's office where I was a manager uh, doing legal technology. Uh, and um, I'll bring that to it if that's, that's good. Uh, otherwise, I bring uh, the education I have. I have a law degree and uh, degrees in government and, and politics. Um, and then I have been an active participant in the LGBT community as an advocate, mostly in Democratic Party politics. So anything that I can bring to the commission, I'm very happy to do so. I look forward to learn. I have a steep learning curve here, so I'm going to be learning a lot of issues. And I really look forward to all of that. So thank you to the director and all of the commissioners who've been so welcoming. And I just really look forward to my service. Thank you, and welcome on board. Uh, unfortunately, I have a piece of sad news to announce. Commissioner Warren Burr is leaving us. I will be. We give you two minutes to just say parting Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so um, as Vice Chair uh, Lou pointed out, um, it's with a heavy heart that I will be uh, resigning my post on this commission um, due to various uh, personal and professional considerations. And um, I just want you to know that it's been an absolute honor to serve with each and every one of you. I've learned a lot on this commission. I will continue to, uh, in, in my professional capacity and in personal life, work on these issues. And I care deeply about the, the population that we serve in, on this commission. And I will carry that forth in everything I've learned here. So uh, having been appointed by the late Mayor Lee also was something that uh, was extremely special to me. And I will never forget as well. So uh, it's been an honor to serve. And I thank you very much. Thank you. And good luck, whatever you're doing. All right, 
item number two, approve of the October 3rd, 2018 agenda. Do I have a motion to approve? So moved. Second. Approve. Um, approval of the September 5th, 2018 meeting minutes. Any second? second? Okay, now we come to the reports. Uh, the director's report, should we take it? Yes. Good morning, commissioners. Um, I just want to start by welcoming, welcoming Commissioner Knudsen to the commission. It was really nice to get to meet and talk with you last week or the week before, and I'm very much looking forward to working with you on the commission, and congratulations. Um, and I also, Commissioner Wallenberg, um, it's really sad to see you go. Um, we certainly understand that you have other um, things that you have to do and that you're really busy, um, but I think what I want to say is we're holding you to uh, your commitment to serve older adults and, and people with disabilities. I know from the many, many emails and texts that I've gotten from you at all hours of the day that you are really committed um, and that you're really energetic and we need that so much um, when we, you know, kind of in the movement. So we will be calling on you and asking you to help us. So um, good luck. Um, I just wanted to start today actually by talking about a couple things that we don't, I don't have a lot to report on. Um, I know that Diane, when she gets up and does her report, will be talking about legislation. She'll be talking about what the governor signed and, and, and vetoed. Um, so I'm assuming, and I can help round that out. So I'm going to have, let her do that. But um, I do want to talk about a couple things and national celebrations that we had and are having. And the first is in September, we celebrated national employment Employ Older Workers Week, and in October is National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And so it gives us a real opportunity to think about how we're serving older people and, adult, and people with disabilities with respect to employment. I think over the past few years, we've really started paying, as a department, we've really started paying more attention to employment issues, partly because we have some fantastic advocates in the community who said to us, hey, these are really important issues, and partly because the Dignity Fund has really helped us be able to think more broadly beyond some of the programs that we current, that we used to have um, that didn't focus as much on employment. And we had the CSEP program, but we didn't have a lot of other programs, and so we've really been delving more into that. So I just wanted to give you some employment stats to think about, and that's um, over a quarter of older adults participate in the labor force in, in the United States. Um, seniors are more likely to remain active in the labor force than in prior generations, which I'm sure does not surprise anyone. Um, it's the increased age threshold for Social Security retirement benefits. Also, older adults today experience fewer years of disabling conditions, um, higher rate of workforce participation, may also reflect better health of, of younger, older adults today. And then there's the high cost of living. Um, and in addition to that, as we often hear from people, you know, there's really also the people want to remain engaged in the community, and, and employment is often a way for people to do that. So as we're thinking about you know, funding programs and, and what that looks like in the community, it's really helpful. I mean, I think for, for you as commissioners, to when you're, you're the eyes and ears of the community, so like, what would that look like? What new kinds of ideas can we come up with? And then adults with disabilities, almost half of adults with disabilities under age 65 participate in the workforce. But adults with disabilities are twice as likely to be unemployed as those without disabilities. Um, 
we have lots of ableism in our communities and you know this is something that we need to continue tackling as well we you know we need to figure out benefits and how to how to really embrace people in the workforce and still have them get benefits that help them work those kinds of things um, even adults without with disabilities who are employed are twice as likely to be in poverty as those without disabilities so lots of things to think about um, we fund at DOS we fund the reserve program which will serve 100 clients this year. Um, we have some smaller programs that we do. We have a, a contract with the ARC for supplemental jan janitorial services, which is a great um, workforce program for, for clients at the ARC. Um, we have the senior companion program with five stipended positions. And then we have the DOS Hub community liaisons, which is two positions. And this year, we're also going to be starting a DOS ambassador program, which is a new dignity fund initiative. So we'll see how that rolls out as well. But I thought it was a good opportunity just to talk to you about employment and, and um, have you think about that as you go out into the community today. So that is my report. Thank you. Thank you. Any question for Shireen from the commission? Any question from the public? Speak up. Okay, then we move on. Employee recognition. Uh, the Department of Aging and Adult Service Commission and Executive Director Shireen will recognize Elvira from Dara of Veteran Service for her hard work and dedication. Okay, good morning, everyone. Um, I want to start off first, LV, by talking about the fantastic group of people that you work with. And then we'll, and then we'll get into more about what you're doing with uh, County Veterans Service Office. So we are really fortunate at DOS to have the County Veterans Service Office within our department. And um, it's a small office, and we don't get to talk about what you guys do very often. Um, the County Veterans Service Office sits within the DOS Benefits and Resource Hub. Resource and Benefits Hub. Uh, the DOS Benefits and Resource Hub, which is at 2 Goff. And uh, Martha Huddle is the director there of 2 Goff, at least the intake side of it. And so, you know, the County Veterans Service Office really does a huge service to veterans. And part of the issue and the reason that County Veterans Service Offices exist is because the VA has benefits for veterans, but they don't do a very good job of, of making sure that veterans get their benefits. And so what the County Veterans Service Office does is it really helps to make sure that veterans who've, who've you know, obviously served the United States very well um, and who deserve their benefits, because that's what they were promised, they help them get those benefits. One of the things that happens with that is that means that sometimes veterans who otherwise would be getting benefits from the city, you know, um, 
can get off those benefits. And so rather than be on GA and things like that, they can actually get more money in their pockets. They can actually spend more money in San Francisco as San Franciscans, which is better for the economy, it's better for San Francisco, and it's certainly better for the veterans. I think one of the other things that happens with the, the office is all of you who are working with veterans have to have a lot of patience and have to have a lot of understanding and empathy. And I know from Martha and from um, Dorian, who unfortunately didn't get to be here today because he's in a training in Los Angeles, that you guys have that. You have that empathy, and that's what it takes to work with, with veterans who've seen a lot, often have PTSD, and you know, just often don't feel understood in San Francisco. So I want to thank all of the County Veterans Service Office staff for what they do. So Elvie, though, today is your day. Um, and you know, I think that Dorian um, recommended you, but I think he also said to me that really anybody in County Veterans Service Office could get this. So you get to be representative today um, because of the work that you do. So I know that you did work in the Philippines before you came to the United States, right? And you had many years of experience there um, working with the U U.S. Department of um, Veterans Affairs in Manila. So that's a pretty interesting um, background that you brought to our office, and we really know that you came having a lot of veterans um, administration experience. So, but since December 2013, you've been here and you used your 26 years of dedicated service and experience for our office, and we really appreciate that. You've maintained a distinct active caseload of over 1,600 cases for veterans and their families. And this represents approximately 33% of the total active, active veterans cases that we have. You're the lead for the San Francisco Medi-Cal Cost Avoidance Program, Subvention and Veterans Service Fund Program, all of which reimburse the county for workload units reported. These programs in just six months have generated a total of $1,450,000. And this represents a, an example of what I was just talking about, which is the federal dollars awarded to veterans that help them then come off some of the city benefits. Um, so, Really, we just want to thank you for your dedication um, to veterans and to the office and to really just celebrate you today and thank you for your service. So. This award is not only for me, but for everybody at the CVSO, starting for Dorian, um, John, Moises and Lisa, for all the staff, for all the veterans who are serving the United States Armed Forces, they are the future veterans that we are going to serve. So, Elvie, on behalf of DOS and the DOS Commission, we present you with the Employee of the Month Award for October Now we have the advisory report by Leon Schmidt. Good morning, Vice President Liu, Commissioners, Executive Director McSpadden. The Advisory Council met on Wednesday, September 19th, 
And at that meeting, Ms. McSpadden came and spoke to us about the work she was doing with the Dignity Fund and the Advisory Council Oversight Committee and how the funds will be rolling out for the next four years. The monies will include uh, going to nutrition programs, senior centers, and other community services and transportation. There's an emphasis on distributing the funds to all the community uh, through the needs assessment, including the LGBT data, and also to the communities of color and communities of adults with uh, disabilities. We have a new member who will be coming on board from District 7, uh, Supervisor Yi uh, District, and he will be coming at our next, in our October meeting. Also, we had a presentation uh, from Ms. Linda Lau, uh, a, DAW, a DAW staff person, and Ms. Lau gave a presentation on the five types of uh, nutrition programs funded by DOS, including home delivered meals, congregate meals, food assistant pantry program, uh, and the SNAP program. And uh, DOS also supports the Senior Farmers Market Nutrition Program. Also, uh, the Education Committee had a program in conjunction with San Francisco State University on Friday, September 28th. It was called DOS Community Training and San Francisco State Senior, uh, San Francisco State Silver Lining Lecture Committee. And it was named Age, Health, Aging, Health, and Wellness in San Francisco. The keynote speaker was uh, California State Senator Scott Weiner. Also, a presentations were given by San Francisco State University Professor Darlene Yi Melachar, uh, Mrs. Uh, Gwen Harris from the Palliative Care uh, Senior at Home Program, and a very great presentation by DOS uh, staff person, Ms. Valerie Coleman. And I would like to thank, at this time, uh, DOS staff person, Melissa McGee, and our for really making this happen. She was really uh, bringing that together and also uh, our commission person, our council person, Dr. Marcia Edelman for making that happen also. So thank you, that's my report. Any questions? Any question from the commission? I have a question. Yes. Who is a new member from District 7? Is uh, Rick Johnson. His, his name is Rick Johnson. Rick Johnson, thank you. Yes. Any other questions? Any other questions? Any question, any other question from the public? I did leave something out, excuse me. Okay. Our new TAC person is Ms. Dar Diane Lawrence, and she will be giving her report. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. All right. The TAC report. Diane Lawrence. Good morning, Commissioners. Uh, Director McSpen. I have two reports. So we'll start with the joint ledge, which I had a lead in for a few minutes ago. We met on, on uh, September 19th. Um, Deputy Director Jill Nielsen uh, gave us a report on conservatorship and the impacts, uh, what those would be if the governor signed SB 1045. And as of that meeting date, the governor had not, but he has since, so that was um, very helpful. Um, the um, governor had until Sunday, oh, and, and um, Deputy Director Nielsen's report on conservatorship was very good. It was very well received and uh, helped us understand how narrow the focus of 
1085 really is um, and um, set the stage in understanding all of the codes that have been modified as a result of, of that bill. Um, the governor had until Sunday to sign uh, pieces of legislation and there were quite a number of bills. Um, we, my report right now will only be on what we did through the 19th and then at our next meeting I'll have the final wrap up for the, for the year. Um, the senior legislature, this is the end of a two year session. So the senior legislature will be meeting in November or a very early part to come up with their top 10 for next year. Uh, they're already starting to work on their proposals and gaining support from um, various legislators that um, uh, beginning to, to move. Uh, one, of the, uh, two, one of the issues that came up uh, by the committee, and we'll talk more about as we move forward, is keeping um, the Board of Supervisors informed of the bills we're tracking. Uh, that was Commissioner Pappas's um, suggestion, and we discussed it. Um, I think we probably need to put in place how um, because that was at the end of the meeting, but we all thought that was a very good, good idea. Because you know what, what are they interested in? Especially since we'll have um, additional new board members coming in in January after the election next month. So as of on the bills that we were tracking, one of the bills had been vetoed, and that bill was on the managed care plans and informational materials. Um, what we'll be doing moving forward, and that was having the materials um, available at least a sixth grade reading level. What you will be seeing in my report that Bridget includes in the minutes moving forward is a statement of what the bill, how the existing law is, and just a summary. Um, giving you all the detail on all the changes gets a little cumbersome and lengthy. And in the effort to save a few trees, we decided to, to just do the summary report. So that's what you'll see. And um, Deputy Commissioner Kaufman and um, Valerie Coleman have been helping in getting that done. So six bills were signed by the governor as of that, and that was definition of dependent persons, um, domestic violence. These were all bills that we had been tracking. The, um, the funding um, and administering of the Older Americans Act, and this would, um, that bill includes an expanded definition of cultural and social isolation, uh, emergency disaster plans for um, residential care facilities for the elderly, we've been talking about that all year, um, that passed and was signed, um, revenue and expenditure reports for the Mental Services Act, and that would provide um, reimbursement for local agencies, um, investigations into elder and dependent care abuse. Um, again, if there are man state mandated monies, those have to be included in this, and the bill would require local law enforcement agencies um, and the long-term care ombudsman programs to revise or include in their, ma um, in their manuals spe specified information regarding elder and dependent care a dependent um, abuse, and then also victim confidentiality. Those have all been signed. Waiting is the communication notifications from the Department of Emergency Services, and those look at translation into the key languages used in California. In-home supportive services um, and translations, that would provide translation of written content. It kind of ties in with the other. The Medi-Cal Assisted Living Waiver Program, uh, that bill would be um, 
to get waiver of the amendments on obtaining necessary federal approvals and on the available uh, federal financial participation. Information materials for managed care plans, the um, fa famous um, grab bar uh, bill is still pending, and that has that language has changed significantly. Um, and the bill would basically require that the state architect review existing di disability access standards for public restrooms and to develop and propose to the commission um, updated standards on the required number of ambulatory accessible stalls. So that's gone from having grab bars in stalls and uh, making them more uh, easier to use to a much to a reporting function. Emergency notification and um, county jurisdictions um, against uh, Senator Weiner's bill had not been, and then Senator Weiner's um, bill on prevention and early um, intervention and mental health, uh, bills on prescription drugs, and um, sexual harassment training is was still pending. Um, the um, and then also a bill on Alzheimer's disease, and that would be uh, working with, uh, by January of 2021, to update the facts and figures from, for California from uh, 2009, and to look at the impacts to quantify the burden of Alzheimer's on at-risk and underrepresented populations. Again, that's been a bit changed. And then the transportation companies and accessibility for people with disabilities. And that was a bill that came in at the end. So are there any questions or? Any question from the commission? No. Any question from the public? Thank you, Diane, for the answer report. And now my second report. Oh, so I've been a double duty, huh? <laughs> so I've been um, um, asked or I've volunteered or kind of a combination. So I'm the new representative for our um, planning and service area or PSA as they're referred to in all the literature for um, to the AAA Council of California. So what I thought I'd do very briefly is just kind of level set since we have some new commissioners and as to what the AAA is because we use acronyms quite often and it's sometimes hard to know what what it is so the AAA Council of California is made up of one and this is all off their website um, is made up of one representative from 33 planning and service areas or PSAs they range in size from five or six counties that we might see in upper in the left you look at a map of the state of California on the upper left hand corner to the city and county of San Francisco being just its own PSA. Typically, they're a county size, so Santa Clara, San Mateo, Contra Costa, Alameda. But as we move into some of the other areas uh, throughout the state where there are uh, less dense population, you see clustered of counties together. So I'll be giving Bridget a map to include in with my report. Um, the California um, Older Americans Act um, the Older Californians Act, which came into effect after the Older Americans Act, established area agency on area agencies on aging advisory councils, and that is what um, the Triple um, A Council of California uh, represents. Its mission is to communicate and collaborate among the local advisory councils um, to, for education, advocacy, and strengthen. We meet quarterly 
So I think sometimes um, in the past, we, there was a thought that perhaps we met more frequently. So my next report would be in January. So we meet quarterly, uh, and the group is administered by the Commission on Aging. And we're, the group is funded by the checkoff, box 400, on your tax forms. Um, and that um, for people over 65 and older can contribute. And then also the California Foundation on Aging. So this being my first meeting, um, there was a lot to learn. So there were representatives of probably 25 of the 33 agencies. Um, PSAs each had submitted a report um, to the um, to TAC representing what had been done in the last quarter. So for example, the representative from the Lake County um, Ukiah area talked about that there had been 11 evacuations during the fires this summer and the impact um, and some of the challenges on seniors. Um, and then voted on new officers, bylaw changes, meeting schedule for next year and all. So our next meeting is in December. The second day of the program was the California Summit on Long-Term uh, Services and Support. This is the eighth annual conference and it's sponsored by the SCAN Foundation. And this year it was focused was on elections and voter um, views on the need in California for a long-term master plan on aging. So we had statements, videoed statements by the two gubernatorial candidates, um, also by um, Ash Kalra from um, the South Bay, and um, the, um, some reports on the recommendations from the California Task Force on family caregiving um, and workshops on aging in the media, and so um, work coming out of that. And there'll be more information on the California Task Force on Family Caregiving. So all in all, it was a very um, informative and lively um, group. And then we will go back. We also had a presentation on the Home Safe program, which we have been talking about. So that was very good. Um, they'll be looking to get their um, RFPs out fairly quickly and to start putting money in place for that program. That to make sure that we can help people stay in place. And then the director of the Commission on Aging, Sandra Fitzpatrick, gave a report on the Older Americans Act overview. Any oh. question from the commission for Diane <clears throat> from the public? Thank you, Diane. You're welcome. Uh, no tech uh, long-term care report, uh, case report. Good morning, Commissioners. Uh, Directors McSpadden. I'm Dave Conego with on the board of Case, and I'm also work at Curry Senior Center. Just a brief update on what we did in September and what we're uh, doing in October. Uh, we had um, Melissa McGee and uh, Sandy Mori from the Dignity Fund come to our membership meeting, and we got to pepper them with uh, many, many questions. It was a very lively discussion, just trying to understand all the details of how the Dignity Fund works. Um, we also had our monthly meeting uh, with Director McSpadden and um, similarly uh, engaged her with some of the priorities that Case sees that are coming up ahead. Uh, Shireen also agreed to come to our membership meeting to, uh, again, inform our members of a lot of details. Um, 
we look forward to putting you on the spot. And finally, uh, case membership meetings, just so you know, they're always going to be at the at Catholic Charities at 990 Eddy Street. So you're always welcome to come, and they're on the second Monday of every month. Any questions? Any question from commission, from the public? Thank you. All right, thank you. Um, at this point, I'd like to ask if anybody have some general public comment. Please identify yourself. Marie Jobling, the Executive Director of the Community Living Campaign. Um, good morning, Commissioners, DOS staff, and those present here today. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to say how much I appreciate Shireen's comments about the importance of economic security and work, and, and just wanted to add a few additional thoughts. Um, earlier this year, we spoke to you uh, as a commission, to the Long-Term Care Council, to the Board of Supervisors uh, hearings. Um, and as a result of all that, we're pleased to say that the uh, final budget included $600,000 a year for two years uh, for senior and we hope also disability employment. Um, and while we're still waiting to learn how DOS will prioritize these funds, um, we would like to focus again on the larger policy issues with you and with the other policy bodies. Um, tonight, the Office of Economic and Workforce Development is holding a hearing to update their Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act plan. Um, and so we took a look, since the bulk of the monies for workforce development and employment funnel through that, that um, city agency. Um, in this 143-page plan, seniors or older adults are not mentioned once. Youth, 91 times. Older adults or seniors, zero, nothing, nada. Um, and so in case you're questioning whether ageism is still alive here in the city, um, this is one specific example. Now, the DOS Commission has a role beyond approving programs and, and um, and funding and contracts. It also is here to improve the policies uh, impacting seniors and people with disabilities. So as a city, I know we can do better and I hope that you can help on the policy front um, and the handout that I provided will give you some specific examples. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning. I have a couple comments. Uh, Jessica Lehman with Senior and Disability Action. Um, first, I wanted to comment on the conversation about conservatorship with the passing and signing of SB 1045 by the governor and the statement put out by Mayor Breed about being interested in implementing it as soon as possible. I think I had mentioned a couple months ago that there's a lot of us in the community who are actually very concerned about this. And part of it is we're, we're opposed to the idea of expanding involuntary conservatorship and involuntary treatment when we know there's good evidence that voluntary services are not available, that people are not getting the housing they need, they're not getting the mental health services that they need and that they want, um, and that we need to look at that first. Um, we're also very concerned about the criminalization of homelessness in general, because while homelessness was taken out, we know that's, that's really who a lot of folks are talking about um, in this bill and that by requiring people to be detained eight times, generally by the police, um, that increases incentives on a lot of levels for people to go through the system, for police to detain people more often. So I think the, the biggest concern here is that the disability rights community and the mental health community were not consulted at the beginning of this. And, and so we've reached out um, to, to leadership in the city um, to, to say, we need to all have a conversation together, right? We share a lot of the concerns. 
Um, but I think we all agree that when decisions are made about a community, that community needs to be present. And it's very problematic that that hasn't happened with this bill and with this movement. So on a lighter note, um, I want to make sure everyone knows about the, you know, actually, I'm sorry, I missed the, the end point about conservatorship. There's a community coalition that has come together um, with us, Senior and Disability Action, the Mental Health Association, Independent Living Resource Center, the Coalition on Homelessness, and some other groups. We just put out a statement, and I'll make sure to um, pass that on to Director McSpadden um, to forward to all of you, or to Bridget. I'll send it to everyone. Make sure you get it so you can hear some of our concerns. Um, we'd love to, um, to make sure you're aware of them. So I'm sorry, on, on a lighter note, this Friday is SDA's annual celebration. It's our big fundraiser. Um, it's a lot of fun. We have a very short program, and it's really a time to kind of mingle and relax and, and celebrate what we've done, because we're often talking about a lot of the big challenges, and we need time to, to step back and really enjoy and relax. Um, and so we're delighted to have Director McSpadden coming. Jeremy Wallenberg, I believe, is coming. Um, Nicole Bond from the Mayor's Office on Disability. So you can see it's, it's the place to be. You don't want to miss it. <laughs> Um, so um, I'll leave some, some invitations over on the table, and I, I hope all can join us. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Well, we have no old business, so we go on to new business. Um, emergency preparedness in San Francisco, disability, and SS and financial needs and age and disability friendly update. Uh, the presenter is uh, from the mayor's office, Nicole Bone. Good morning, everyone. I'm wondering if my slides can, um, can they go up on the screen today? Okay, I'm all set. Good morning, commissioners and everyone. I'm Nicole Bond. I'm the director of the Mayor's Office on Disability, and I'm very, very pleased to be here this morning. DOS is a critical partner with the Mayor's Office on Disability and all of the work that we do, so I'm very um, happy to have an opportunity to talk about um, emergency preparedness in, in San Francisco and some of the efforts that are uh, underway, and also, um, towards the end of my talk today, I'm going to highlight a few other initiatives that you might want to keep an eye on as we move forward that are impacting folks with disabilities. So several weeks ago, I uh, gave this a similar presentation to this one to the Mayor's Disaster Council, and Commissioner Pappas suggested that uh, I come here and present this material to you as a matter of, of interest. So thank you for the invitation, and I'm glad, again, to be talking about this very important work. So I'm going to be talking about two things today. One is the uh, disability access and functional needs uh, work, which the Mayor's Office on Disability uh, partners with the Department of Emergency Management on, and also the emergency um, 
emergency <coughs> preparedness domain that is part of the aging and disability friendly work, which I also have the pleasure of um, co-chairing with um, Kelly Dearman from IHSS and, and our, all of our partners at DOS. Okay, so I'm gonna start with the um, Disabilities and Access and Functional Needs uh, work group which started in March 2017. It was a merge of several efforts in really wanting to come together to more specifically talk about access and functional needs, which I will explain what that is in a second, um, in emergency situations, specifically to emergency communication, transportation, evacuation, and sheltering. And our group meets about every other month, and we consist of um, representatives from city departments, from DOS, from um, HSA, from public health, emergency management, of course, and then also we have a number of community-based organizations and nonprofits that are contributing and part of this work as well. So the California, California legislation very specifically defines un, um, access and functional needs for us, and you'll see that it covers really a lot of individuals. So we're talking about individuals who have developmental, intellectual, physical, or, or sensory disabilities, so folks who are blind or low vision, chronic health um, disabilities, limited English proficiency, or older adults, children, those who are pregnant, those who are living in institutions, those who are low income, homeless, or transportation disadvantaged, or those from diverse cultures. So really, we're talking about a large segment of our population that we really wanna be serving as part of the access and functional needs effort. And so last year, I wanted to highlight a few things that the group um, worked on. So we talked about implementing the final CMS rule, which is a national legislation that um, makes sure that Medicare and Medicaid have uh, emergency procedures as part of their operations. We looked at San Francisco's paratransit operations, and that's something that we're continuing to look at um, this year as we're thinking about safe evacuation and how to best use paratransit services in, in uh, those scenarios. We also are looking and continue to explore um, lessons learned from our local events that are emergency events, including the extreme heat days that we've had and also, of course, the North Bay fires and what we can learn from those experiences to better apply to what we're doing in the emergency efforts here in the city. And then we've been very concretely mapping the disability access resources and functional facilities throughout the city and county and um, working on some demographic information. We're also trying to very actively reach out to those um, agencies that the Department of Emergency Management has had less opportunity to work with, so very specifically with uh, Lighthouse uh, for the Blind. And then in the, oops, how did I do that? How do I go backwards? I wonder if I can do this. Oh, wrong way. Okay, and then, um, and I'm also very happy to say that we very concretely have been working with 
making sure that disability organizations and people with disabilities are actually members and part of our emergency preparedness and response exercises so that when we're, when we're doing our training, we have people with disabilities who are there and able to give feedback. So mo we most recently have done that with a, um, a ballpark evacuation exercise that we did in the beginning of the year and recently, um, two weeks ago, we had another exercise through Department of Emergency Management um, that also involved folks with disabilities, so I'm very happy about that. Okay, so then moving forward, we're continuing a lot of the work that I mentioned previously, and now specifically over the next two years, we're working hard to update our processes and procedures for um, durable medical equipment, so that's things like uh, walkers, wheelchairs, oxygen tanks, and really what happens to those devices during an emergency incident because we know in a, in a true emergency situation there is a possibility that the individual could be separated from their equipment. So we want to make sure that there's processes in place to reunite the equipment and the individual. We're also very specifically working um, with the San Francisco Fire Department and Department of Building Inspection around our procedures and policies around safe evacuation, especially in multi-story buildings, uh, which is one of our um, Asian disability friendly efforts also. So there's some crossover here. We're continuing um, mapping and sharing our facilities and resources, as I previously mentioned, and then also doing targeted outreach again to those groups that uh, we haven't had as much success uh, reaching, so specifically deaf and hard of hearing individuals and blind and low vision individuals who are very impacted, of course, in an emergency situation. We wanna make sure uh, we're hearing um, from those communities as well. And then the... Um, and then the uh, Disability Access and Functional Needs Group is very concretely working on the uh, recommendations that are within the implementation phase of the Aging and Disability Friendly Task Force, uh, which is what I'm gonna talk about now. So I'm sure you're familiar with the Asian Disability Friendly effort, our collaborative planning process to make sure that we have an accessible and inclusive San Francisco. I wanna to highlight too that I'm very proud that San Francisco is, is one of the first municipalities, if not the first municipality, to incorporate disability in their age-friendly cities framework, which is very uh, exciting and important for us. And so this effort is looking again at our, our aging population who are living in urban environments with a focus on community-based living and all of the impacts on our environment. And it's based on the World Health Organization uh, framework. And right now, we're right in the middle of the five-year um, planning process, and we're in the implementation phase of um, implementing the recommendations that came out of the um, task force work from the previous uh, year and a half that that came out with recommendations across eight domains, um, specifically targeting older adults, folks with disabilities, those with age-related cognitive impairment, and caregivers, so that we can identify strategies collaboratively to address these barriers that we know exist. So the eight domains, um, as a reminder, are community and health services, engagement, 
technology, employment, housing, transportation, and outdoor spaces. And we're making progress across all of the domains, uh, but right now I'm going to focus for a minute on uh, resiliency and emergency preparedness and the, the work there. And the specific goals that the task force recommended for um, immediate um, focus on implementation. So over the next two years, what we're looking at um, making progress on are specifically three things to start. And this process is iterative, so we will address these goals and then see where we are, and then, um, and then future efforts will continue to identify priorities in this particular domain. Right now, we're focusing on providing support for seniors, for people with disabilities, and caregivers on emergency preparedness. So very specifically, do they have the information that they need to have in order to know how to respond and be prepared for themselves in an emergency situation? Through one of those ways that we're trying to um, help the disability community in particular and seniors be connected with this information is through encouraging registration with our Alert SF system. And so we've made some progress um, across the city in uh, those registration statistics that really helps people to stay up to date on and, and current with what's happening right now. And then as I mentioned uh, earlier, we're focusing on a strategy for evacuating people with mobility challenges, especially in multi-story buildings, so that we know uh, what happens in, in terms of an evacuation and also what happens with any kind of assistive equipment that might be needed and used uh, in those times, including transportation to and from things like shelters and, 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 and uh, things of that nature. So in this particular domain, we, we're working specifically with Department of Public Health and Emergency Management, my office, DOS, and Neighborhood Empowerment Network in terms of our, um, our, our city partners. And then again, we have feedback from across uh, other organizations as well. So, so that's a very kind of brief recap of or summary of where we are with emergency efforts. I'll pause here for a second and see if anyone has any questions, and then I'm going to move on briefly to some other current initiatives that you may want to know about. Commissioner? I just want to say a special thank you to Nicole. Uh, when this was presented at the Disaster Council, it was well received, and I heard so many references to aging adults and people with disabilities that I had, I put my commission hat on at uh -huh. that meeting, that I was not there uh, as a commissioner, uh, but I felt that, that this report would be beneficial not only to our colleagues, but to our staff and the members of the public that are here. And I want to say a special thank you to Director McSpadden for accommodating. I didn't realize that this was going to be happening so quickly, but thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule uh, to be able to make this presentation and to share your important work with us. Thank you. Thank you, I appreciate it. A quick question. Yeah. Since I live in a multi-story building and I'm actually on a committee that is trying to get us ready for an emergency, um, the Opera Plaza uh, down the street, mm -hmm. how does, from all of this great work you're doing, so I'm very, very impressed with all this, um, how does that start, well, how will that start to get communicated out to the multi-story buildings and basic uh, citizens in San Francisco, both disabled and older, that, that some of these um, mm -hmm. uh, great 
ideas exist and are going to going to help them in an mm -hmm. emergency? Are there just so we out? haven't, yeah. but we haven't gotten to the communication strategy on this particular okay. issue yet. So it's a little bit early uh -huh. for me to be able to comment right now. We're really focused on um, what is the what is the process for actually. Uh, evacuating folks because we're finding that there's not consistent understanding across the city yeah, I can... about what we need to be doing. Okay. So that's the focus right now. And then I would imagine that as we continue that conversation and, and start to make additional progress, we will have an outreach strategy as part of that, but right. it's not developed yet. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Any questions from the public? Okay, I will move on to a few other um, efforts that I just want to make sure that uh, folks know about. So um, in terms of initiatives that is specifically impact um, people with disabilities, there are others than the ones that I've highlighted here, but these are, these are the ones that are in the kind of the furthest along and really do need and, desi and desire continued attention and, and need extra help and support. So our Voting Accessibility Advisory Committee, or the VAC, is working on helping um, San Franciscans know about accessible vote by mail options. Um, that's state legislation, that's statewide, and uh, was implemented as of the previous election cycle, and we have another election coming up, and we know that folks with disabilities are not voting in the same numbers as the general public. So accessible vote by mail is, uh, was put in place to help people have an accessible option um, to vote electronically. They can't submit their um, ballot electronically, but you can vote, and then there's a process to um, submit that in a way that is private, which especially impacts those with physical disabilities or those who are blind or low vision who have difficulty with paper ballots. So uh, continue to monitor and, and we'll help get the word out about that. Uh, the committee is also looking at voting platform recommendations for what we're using locally and keeping an eye on open source voting as that evolves and the accessibility um, needs in those platforms. Um, it was mentioned earlier um, this morning that SB 1376, which is the Transportation Network Company's Accessibility for All Act, was signed by Governor Brown in September, which is very good news, um, for statewide implementation by 2024. So the implementation efforts are just um, beginning locally, but we're very excited. And SFMTA and Mayor's Office on Disability uh, were very involved in that legislation language. Locally, also, the Accessible Business Entrance Ordinance is underway, um, which is legislation that um, makes sure that places of public accommodation have, an, have their primary uh, entrance accessible to people with disabilities. So the city is right now in the first of four phases of uh, ensuring um, compliance with this ordinance across all businesses in the, in the city of, that are places of public accommodation. And this will be continuing uh, for the next three years. So you'll want to uh, keep an eye on this as well, I think. And then the next piece of legislation that I wanted to mention is the litter and waste reduction or plastic straw ordinance that is currently um, 
the amendments for this ordinance are currently being reviewed in terms of an exemption for people with disabilities who may need plastic straws. And then um, in this um, legislation is scheduled for implementation in 2019. And then finally today, I wanted to mention briefly that we are in the middle of the San Francisco Emerging Technology Workgroup um, recommendations. We are currently in a workgroup phase that has a very similar structure to the Asian Disability Friendly effort in that it brings together city departments um, and uh, members of the public and community-based uh, organizations to look at where we are with um, emerging technology, um, specifically around um, things like um, those devices that are in the public right-of-way, like uh, mobility uh, scooters or robots, those kind of things, and all the way to what, what are we doing in terms of thinking through how technology can be used in a more proactive way. So these, um, these efforts are going to be presented by the city administrator to the Board of Supervisors in December. So this is a, we're on a very aggressive timeline, um, but we're making good progress, I think. The emerging technology recommendations at the request of um, the public have track recommendations related to accessibility and safety and also equitable, equitable benefits um, for um, for people who are from disadvantaged communities. So um, we will keep working on those and I, I thought you might want to have this as something that you would keep an eye on as well. Any questions on those particular efforts? So I mentioned a lot in one slide, so <laughs> I'm sure there's, there's, a, there's much more I can talk about. Any questions from, any question from the public? Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much. Okay, next item, Community Living Fund six-month report for January to June 2018, Carrie Wong. Good morning, Commissioners, Deputy Director McSpavin. Um, I'm pleased to report the, present the Community Living Fund six-month report um, for this period of January to June 2018. The goal of CLF is to support aging in place and community-based alternatives for individuals who may otherwise require institutionalization. Um, DOS reports every six months detailing the level of services provided, um, costs incurred in connection with this fund. So I would like to highlight a few areas. I know it was a little more dense of a report than normal. Um, the CLF program received 172 new referrals during this time period. Uh, most have, uh, were eligible and have been served. 309 were served by intensive case management program through the Institute on Aging. Um, during this period, CLF also transitioned 28 residents from skilled nursing facilities. Uh, 15 of those were from Laguna Honda specifically. Five of those 15 were transitioned into scattered site housing units managed by Brilliant Corners. Um, CLF eligible individuals living in institutional 
um, living in institutions who have no appropriate housing alternatives and meet scattered site criteria are considered for those units. Um, as of the end of June 2018, Brilliant Corners has a capacity to serve an additional seven clients, and that's a rotates throughout the year. Um, CLF also continues to, port, uh, to support the Shanti Paws Pets Are a Wonderful Support um, program for animal bonding services for isolated LGBT older adults and adults with disabilities who meet CLF criteria. Um, pets are considered family and individuals often forgo, forgo their own health care needs so that their pet needs are met. So during last fiscal year, 1718, CLF served a total of 199 unduplicated clients by funding pet-related tangible goods and services, and then thereby allowing individuals to afford their other necessities, including health care needs. Um, this support helped also increase the pause capacity and move pe people off their wait list. Lastly, um, IOA has a new contract partner with Self-Help for the Elderly for a bilingual registered nurse to provide nursing consultation services as well as to carry a caseload of clients requiring medically intensive care management services as 90% of the self-help population are of Asian and Pacific Island descent. This partnership is anticipated to improve um, CLF's capacity to outreach and serve individuals um, representing San Francisco's diverse population. This concludes my report and can entertain questions. Any question from the commission? Any question from the public? I did actually have one question. Oh, um, too late. <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a few questions. Me. But <laughs> um, so talking about residential care facilities, and thanks as always, Carrie, um, it states that due to the fact that RC, RC FE subsidies are high for low-income clients. The CLF program is currently at capacity for subsidies available for individuals requiring uh, the RCFE level of care. Um, is that based on just the overall budget capacity of the Community Living Fund? Is it based on, I know there's issues on just availability and capacity of our citywide network of RCFEs in general, uh, and that the, the city is looking towards what through the via the task force and the board of supervisors and the mayor on budgeting back uh, to improve that network but um, just wanted to add a little more color on that if you would sure there's a specific number of slots that CLF allows for our CFEs as you know those are quite expensive and they're ongoing indefinitely until the person doesn't need it anymore which is probably years and so um, those because this those slots that are um, if we were increasing the slots, it would take away from someone else that could use some home modifications or other purchases of services that would enable someone to stay at home. So it's a, it's, it's a um, kind of like a juggling, if you will, of what the priorities are and, and how do we manage these precious, precious resources because if we can keep someone in their home, they may not need to go to an RCFE and it's cheaper to provide a home accommodation than to provide an ongoing subsidy. So that's sort of the judgment calls that are made for those situations. Sure. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. And just to clarify, so yes, it's, it's, it's a factor of the budget and the limitations of that specific budget and not the other issue, which is also an issue, <laughs> but um, that's a separate thing. Okay. Uh, and then I did, thank you, Carrie. Thank you. Green. Um, and I did have just one other question. So we talked about a bilingual, um, 
uh, skilled uh, nurse to handle uh, more intensive uh, cases, but um, they're also overall, it seems that uh, the API community um, in the CLF program is underrepresented compared to the overall population and likely the overall needs that are out there. So um, is that going to be, is the new position also going to help in general the referral outreach or right. uh, how are we working on, on So as you know, it's been something we've been working on on an ongoing basis and the usual outreach methods doesn't seem to be enough. We have bilingual staff and that seems to, you know, the, the, the referrals shift based on when the staff are there or, you know, different different things that happen and, you know, we've struggled with this. So the thought was that by having an active partner that is and has expertise and works with primarily the API population, that that natural partnership will increase um, referrals, increase outreach because you're integrated with that organization. <coughs> so there's that piece of it. Um, so in addition to that RN being able to um, have the bilingual capacity and, and take on caseload in addition to the medically needed, we're also doing other things such as um, people that are of API descent get a priority on the wait list. Um, they're getting moved off the wait list faster. We're um, streamlining the folks that are the bilingual staff that have capacity to, to we're maximizing that person's caseload so that they can. New hires that come on board, um, th we're gonna prioritize the, those um, spaces for folks that have um, the background and expertise to serve this population. So it's kind of a multifold thing. This is the latest thing that we thought might be most effective. We'll see how it goes in the next six months, one year, and see how, how fast that turns that around. So it's an ongoing effort to um, make a difference in this measure. Thank you. Kerry, is this uh, position uh, temporary or just trial or is it permanent? It's a permanent position. It's permanent. Yeah. And well, it's a contract position with, with self-help, so in that respect, yes. Yeah, sometimes it's really kind of important when uh, when people see a face they are familiar with, you know, and uh, they will be more open right. to ask questions and other things. And so that's a good uh, move to have someone who speaks the language. Right. And, and just a sidebar, we've also been doing more um, kind of investigation with why the referrals might be. And, you know, from Laguna Honda, you know, a lot of those discharges um, people go back home to family. You know, that's sort of, you know, we, we're looking at are there um, utilization patterns that are different for this population and maybe we need to serve um, people in the community more and, and focus more on the utilization patterns for someone of API descent or, or, or people that have more family or extended family support um, um, in, in, in helping with older adults in the community. So, so that we're looking at as well. So it's kind of a multifold piece that we're looking at to, to make sure that we're looking at it holistically and not just doing the traditional ways of outreach. Thank you. Thank you. All right, we come to item A, requesting authorization to modify the existing grant agreement with Open House for the provision of community service for seniors and adults with disability during the period July 1, 2018 through June 30, 2019. 
for an additional amount of 105,000 plus 10% contingency for a total amount not to exceed of 697 $220, Rick Appleby. Uh, thank you, um, and good morning, Vice President Liu, Commissioners, Director McSpadden, Bridget. Uh, thanks, I'm glad to be here to talk about this modification to Open House's community services programs. There's two parts to this. Um, the first uh, uh, add-back funds, one-time add-back funds, will go towards housing assistance, and at Open House, this will be um, a housing coordinator to help with preparations for their new LGBTQ uh, residents that's completing now, and there's expectation that there'll be an application pro um, process starting uh, this fall. So the housing uh, coordinator will be, of course, intimately involved in that process, doing community outreach, they're increasing the number of housing workshops that Open House is sponsoring. There'll be a, a large outreach. Uh, Open House staff told me they would expect about 3,000 applications for the 79 units. So that's a lot of work. Um, certainly a need for another staff person to help out. Uh, this person will also answer questions to the public, be directly involved with people's requests around the application. It's fairly complicated. So we're happy to be able to support them in um, having this person to get ready for that exciting opening of the new residence. Uh, the second modification is uh, funding from the District 8 participatory budgeting process. That's a process in which district residents can um, benefit directly from um, Board of Supervisor funds. Uh, they suggest projects uh, for their residents and those are approved and move forward on a one-time basis. So in this case, there's a intergenerational project um, that will be, um, it's coming out of UCSF um, and done collaboratively with Open House uh, university students will be paired with older adults and people with disabilities to do creative arts projects. Um, and the ultimate goal of that is, again, focusing on the social isolation of older adults and people with disabilities in the LBGTQ community, recognizing that bringing folks together of different ages supports um, less social isolation. Uh, creative arts is an important aspect of that. and. Um, it's an exciting opportunity to, to see that kind of program go forward. So those are the two addbacks. Thanks for your consideration. I can answer any questions. Hopefully. Any question from the commission? A few, um, since I felt like I said in my beginning remarks that we started this sort of idea back when I was at the Human Rights Commission a, a number of years ago. Sure. Um, so I feel like this is very full circle for me. Because of that, I just had some specific questions because I was very interested in it. Um, first of all, just to clarify, this is a new position for the housing coordinator? Do they already exist? I, um, that's almost a technical question. It's uh, technically a new position. Yeah. I think they have someone doing that work currently. Okay. But this will support... Because, of course, they've been preparing for this okay. yeah, I kinda... for a while now. So they do have some folks working on that. And this is technically a new position. Okay. And then this is just 
this housing, even though there will be 3,000 applicants for it, this would be for, there's an, is there an income standard for the housing? There, um, I don't know the specific income criteria, but it yeah. typically is for a housing unit like this. Um, it's not taken into consideration during the application uh, process. Um, uh, well, I shouldn't say that, but it's specifically more taken into consideration when people come up on the wait list after the lottery okay. and they're considered for an apartment. Okay, yeah, I just but, wondered but typically how... typically is a... So... Oh, sure. <laughs> and Teddy, executive and I, I just mean this is a very general question. Yeah. So as the... There's a huge issue of people, LGBT people, staying in the city. So, so as this housing coordinator goes out and communicates to people, will they be communicating on those sort of general issues as well, or just sort of specifically to the community that would be um, particularly um, qualified for the housing? Yeah. So will it also improve just information in general to LGBT population about housing? That, that's kind of what I'm, where I'm headed with that question. Um, thank you. Yeah. I'm Karen Scaltetti. I'm the executive director of Open House. Thank you, commissioners and executive director McSpadden. Um, yeah, so Open House runs a fairly robust um, resource and referral navigation program where we help connect people to services and to housing all year round all the time. Um, this is essentially an expansion of that program to have additional support and outreach housing coordination while we go through this lease up. Um, so the housing is is affordable um, housing and so falls under the um, average median income uh, requirements and that's typically who we're serving through our housing assistance program is people who are qualifying for affordable housing or below market race rate housing although we also help people navigate who just are middle income and quite frankly also are getting pushed out of the city and don't that's have kind a of what place I was to live. Wondering if that uh, else. Yeah, so we run the we run a robust housing assistance program all the time. Um, it just gets in particularly robust when we're trying to um, get as many LGBTQ people as we can to apply for the new housing that will open at 95 Laguna. Okay, great. And then if I, I, I had another question about the other, but if other commissioners had questions about this. <coughs> okay. Then on the other item, it, it's so interesting, just that, um, the whole idea of just a program, is it, is it specifically for the LGBT community or is that, it would other people um, be? It, um, it's a program that was developed by um, this researcher at UCSF who we're working with and she did a small pilot um, with Little Brothers mm -hmm. um, that was with uh, heterosexual um, uh, folks and so now this is kind of a next step expansion um, of the project, so um, so she's done a little bit of pilot testing. I think they did six matches with Little Brothers, and so now this will be um, us starting to match with LGBTQ seniors. Okay, and then will there be outcomes? Is she doing a study? Is yeah, kind of yeah. So it's a pretty robust. It was part of why I'm an outcomes-oriented <laughs> person. So um, I think it's great when we can actually demonstrate how these things impact and make a difference in people's, in people's lives. So yeah, she's using measures related to social isolation, to loneliness, mm -hmm. um, community connectedness, um, depression, anxiety. So yeah, she's got a whole robust set of measurements that they're taking a look at as part of the outcomes okay. um, of the project. 
And then the outreach could be for, that's through your organization. That's correct. People getting your newsletter and things like that could find out that's ab correct. about it and potentially be matched. Is yeah, I mean, I think the hard part for us is we run a pretty robust, friendly visitor program, and this is a time-limited intervention, and mm -hmm. people have a hard time saying goodbye to their uh, match at the end of this, but the nice thing is then they'll be able to roll um, off of this project and into the friendly visitor program to continue to have volunteer contact. Okay, great. Thank yeah. you very much. Sure. That was it. Commissioner Wallenberg. Okay. Any other questions? Any question from the public? Thanks, Karen. Here, none. Uh, do I have a motion to approve this? So moved. Any second? <clears throat> second. Now we call for the vote. All approved say. Uh, or name or whatever. <laughs> Aye. 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 Um, B, requesting authorization to modify the existing grant agreement with the uh, open house for the provision um, of community service for seniors and, sorry, um, well, let me start again. And we are now come to B, requesting authorization to modify the existing grant agreement with Open House for the provision of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, LGBTQ cultural sensitivity training during the period of July 1, 2018 through June 30th, 2019, <coughs> for an additional amount of 85,000 plus a 10% contingency for a total amount not to exceed of 256,518, and Rick will present the item. Yes, thanks again, commissioners. Um, we've talked uh, multiple times before about open houses, LG LGBTQ cultural humility training and the work they've been doing with Office on Aging to reach their provider, net, our provider network. Um, this really expands that uh, process in response to uh, uh, San Francisco Ordinance 4715, and uh, that passed in 2015, which, and it recognizes that uh, LGBTQ folks in long-term care residential facilities may experience a variety of discrimination, harassment, um, other kinds of illegal activities, and that ordinance calls out the LGBTQ uh, community in those facilities and establishes illegal activities, discriminatory activities, and then also a resident's uh, bill of rights, LGBTQ resident bill of rights, um, so that folks in those facilities understand um, what they can expect and, and hope for. Uh, so we're going to be working uh, with Open House, since they already have a training curriculum, to add this piece to it. The ordinance requires that um, staff of the long-term care uh, facilities, um, uh, one staff be identified as a liaison. Uh, various staff would probably need training around this specific ordinance and the issues facing their LGBTQ residents. Um, and uh, the ordinance calls for a, a client rights handbook, a resident rights handbook, 
Um, so um, given that we already have an on ongoing relationship with Open House and they've done well for us, we've, it made sense for us to turn to them and ask them to participate in this project. So um, they'll be working on the development of a training curriculum on this topic and also prepping uh, a handbook that explains to consumers, to residents, what their rights are and what the um, grievance and complaint process is. Um, any questions? Thanks. Just a quick question. Uh, is the Human Rights Commission at all engaged in this? Uh, you know, because it would seem to me that in areas of discrimination, the complaints would end up there, but proactively speaking, perhaps they might be able to offer some input in terms of the handbook itself. Exactly. We, I think there was outreach to that um, department at, uh, as we started looking at how this would go. Um, so they have been involved and will be involved. And you're right, they will be one of the uh, resources available to residents of those facilities. And I had a quick question, too, related to that. Is there any way that there, there can be prioritization be due to complaints, perhaps about, and I'm, I don't know if any in particular, but just a particular facility or something that might have had complaints? Is there any way to prioritize those trainings or... Uh, sorry, priority. Do, do people think about, like, are there any particular agencies that may have um, had complaints about from its LGBT residents or people who weren't in those and felt like there wasn't sensitivity to their issues that would be the, uh, a first priority for some of these trainings? Is oh. there any... any um, the Ombudsman's Office already has the responsibility to receive uh, complaints um, from long-term mm -hmm. facilities. Mm -hmm. So they've already responded to any who might um, be LGBTQ and had issues around that. And they'll be the primary agency going forward as well when this handbook comes out. They'll be the primary uh, resource for people to have um, look at complaints. So hopefully I, we will great, be able yeah. to prioritize people who have outstanding complaints, mm -hmm. or, and over time, we should be able to see if there are particular facilities that may have. And I'm just sort of envisioning this, so as you go to a facility and you might be an LGBT person, will that handbook be perhaps at all of those facilities when you visit them and things like that? Just so you would, if there was an issue, you would know as a LGBT person in San Francisco looking at facilities that you had that uh, way of accessing um, the ombudsman, right. that kind of um, thing. The Bill of Rights is to be posted okay. in those facilities. That's not always foolproof. Mm -hmm. There's other Bill of Rights that people don't always know about. Um, the handbook <coughs> will be distributed to residents of the facilities directly. Um, the the goal would be to have that as part of every application and intake packet that anyone going in would be. And then just in general through our training and outreach at large, mm -hmm. we hope that more people would know about this and what to do if they have issues. Great. That sounds great. Thank you. Okay. A question on the uh, handbooks. Would there be uh, in multilingual or what? That would be the goal. Yes, we uh, need to get the final version, and then we'll be working on translation into a variety of languages. Do you know what kind of language would it be? I think the usual targeted... Um, English, Chinese, sure. Spanish? Sure. I mean, I don't think there's any... 
look at my colleagues who are on that committee. Yeah, I think that's the, the goal. Okay. Um, any more questions from the commission? Question from the public? Thank you, Rick. Now we can uh, vote on this, okay? Uh, do I have a motion to approve this? So moved. Any second? Second. Okay, let's get a vote. Uh, in favor, say aye. 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 Motion approved. Okay, uh, see, Rick, you'll be standing all whole day here. <laughs> um, item C, requesting authorization to modify the existing grant agreement with Shanti Project for the provision of expanding social isolation prevention services to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer LGBTQ plus seniors and adults with a disability during the period of July 1, 2018 through June 30, 2019 in the additional amount of 115,000 plus a 10% contingency for a revised total amount not to exceed of 866,140, Rick. Great, thanks again, commissioners. Um, this is an exciting opportunity to expand some of the programming at Shanti. Uh, when the money was first being discussed, I met with the staff and uh, what was great to hear is they said, well, our, our consumers, the members of our, our programs, um, have expressed an interest in having greater, more opportunity to go to, to groups together and that that would specifically address social isolation in a way different than care navigation or peer support would. So Shanti was, you know, very interested in looking at ways that they could develop group activities and, and address their primary mission. So um, their first thought was to do groups, of course, and they wanted to target on wellness and health education uh, groups so that not only would there be socialization, but education about the various health concerns uh, that people face, um, uh, we, um, such as um, cooking, nutrition, uh, disease management education. Um, so that's a new piece of the Shanti uh, program. Um, and as well then, they recognized that Open House already had some of these wellness programs, so they wanted to collaborate with Open House as part of this add back funding so that Shanti consumers could access those existing programs. Um, a couple that I'll mention is yoga and meditation at Open House. Um, so they'll be uh, subcontracting with Open House uh, to have programs that Shanti clients can access. Um, the other uh, valuable piece to this is that more clients of Open House will know about the Shanti project and hopefully be able to access the other isolation programs such as peer navigation and peer, I'm sorry, care navigation and peer support. So that's really what we're looking to do with this, thanks. Any question from the commission? I have a question. Um, I'm just looking at the outcome of um, at the the, uh, the service unit. Okay, in 2019 and 20, uh, to June, July 1, 2019 to June 2020, 
you provide, it said it will provide 2,100 hours of care navigation to consumers. That's on page six. Right. And on page, um, on, let's see, on page five, um, it said that it will provide the same period, it will provide a, a, a one year period provide 26, 20 hours of care navigation to consumers. Why is there a drop of the unit by like 27%? The 26, 20 on page five is for the add back fiscal okay. year. So there's additional monies and there are expecting an increase in care navigation hours. And then over the course of the rest of the contract, they're expecting 2,100 hours without the add-back monies. So because uh, of the add-back, they are able to provide more units of service. Yes. So should there be another add-back in next year, they will most probably will add more units to the service. Am yes. I correct? Absolutely, and I, I would imagine that's what they're hoping for to some level. Well, let's hope that we will have some add-back. Um, any question from the public? Yeah, none. We are ready. I just could. need to ask the commission to recuse from this vote uh, due to a conflict of interest. You are excused. Um, okay. Do I? Okay, um, we're going to have to take a vote for um, Commissioner Knutson to recuse. What? So we're going to um, take a vote. The okay. I'm going to ask the commission to vote on Commissioner Knutson recusing herself. Okay. Okay, are we ready for the vote? Do I have a motion? So moved. Second. Okay, all those say aye in favor? Aye. Passed, except for Thank Commissioner. Thank you. We just voted that so that she could recuse herself. Okay. One more time? Okay, let's vote for a second time to approve this without the Commissioner. <coughs> Connection. Okay. Uh, so moved. All in, uh, in favor, say aye. 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 Approved. Thank you. Thank you, Rick. I'm just going to clarify what happened. Commissioner Martha Knudsen is um, recusing herself from the Agenda item C, the Shanti agenda item, um, because of a conflict of interest, and we took a vote. Uh, we asked the commission. I asked the commission to vote, take a vote, and they approved. Sorry, and then we, they voted to approve the agenda item altogether. Moving on. <laughs> Moving along, okay. Item D, review and approval of California Department of Aging, MIPPA, Medicare <coughs> Improvement for Patients and Provider Act, contract MI1819-06, associated budget 
and all subsequent amendments and modification to the Self-Help for the Elderly HICAP grant agreement to include MIPPA funds for fiscal year 18-19. And uh, Mike will present this. Good morning, uh, Commissioners, Executive Director McSpadden. Uh, my name is Mike Dog, a Director of Office on the Aging. The item before you today is approval of the CDA um, and City and County of San Francisco MIPA contract. We have to bring this uh, before you for approval as one of the final steps of the contract execution process. With your approval today, we will be able to access these funds um, and use them to fund our MIPA program. Uh, the MIPA program, as described, is the Medicare Improvements for Patients and Provider Act. Um, it's a program that has a pretty narrow focus. It focuses on um, increasing en enrollments in the low-income subsidies for Part D uh, Medicare prescription drug programs, as well as helping with um, enrollments in the Medicare savings programs. These are like the QMB and the SLMB programs that help cover Medicare Part A and, and Medicare Part B um, premiums. Um, we have historically um, passed these funds through for administration of the MIPA program as part of the HICAP program. That has worked really well. Um, it's, a, it's something that we would like to continue to do. Um, it's a good fit because of uh, the HICAP program's um, sort of existing subject matter expertise, as well as their infrastructure um, and community networks they've already developed um, for getting the word out uh, about this program. Um, one of my favorite stats I like to use every year when I bring this forward is that the Social Security Administration um, estimates that for um, uh, folks enrolled in these programs, the average savings can be about $4,000 on an annual basis um, by participating in these programs. Um, and currently, uh, in, in federal fiscal year 1617, self-help um, helped 155 people enroll. Um, in the current federal fiscal year, which actually ended just a couple days ago, they're at about 140 with some more coming in as they complete their, their contracting or their uh, file review and, and, and closures. So with a small amount of money, we really see a massive impact uh, with, with these dollars. So with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. Any question from the commission? Any question from the public? Hearing none, let's get a vote. Um, so moved. Second. Any second? Okay, let's vote. All in favor say aye. 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 Pass. Okay, we come to the last item. Item E, requesting authorizing authorization to modify the existing grant agreement with community living campaign for the provision of a community service program pilot during the period July 1, 2018 through June 30, 2020 in an additional amount of 157,990 plus 10% contingency for total amount not to exceed of 700 and 6,189, Tiffany. Thank you and good morning, Commissioners, Executive Director McSpadden. The modification I am presenting will enable Community Living Campaign to pilot three new uh, con community connector programs. Two will be located in District 7 in the uh, Sunnyside and Midtown Terrace neighborhoods. The third one will be located in District 5 in the Inner Sunset. 
With the additional funding, Community Living Campaign will increase their units of service for this grant. They will provide services to at least 78 more consumers this year and at least 85 more next year. They will offer uh, more programming as well, 253 more um, hours of service this year and 198 more next. Community Living Campaign has been successful in developing community connector programs in neighborhoods that do not have a nearby community center that provide services for, or provide uh, supportive programming for older adults and adults with disability. These connector programs aim to bring seniors and adults with disability together and cultivate a sense of community within neighborhoods while um, also providing healthful and supportive programming. They, will all, they also help build a neighborhood network of older adults and adults with disability that can support each other when needed. This type of programming is in alignment with what DOS consumers reported they valued and found beneficial in the Dignity Fund Community Needs Assessment process. At the end of this past fiscal year, which was the first year of the grant, uh, community living campaign exceeded their contractual level of uh, consumer enrollment and units of service. They were also effective in reaching their target number of new consumers. More than 90% of the enrolled consumers who were surveyed last year reported that program participation increased their engagement with their neighborhood community, increased their physical activity, and that they had learned of new services available uh, to them. So we expect that these new programs in the neighborhoods will be equally as successful. And I want to thank Commissioner Liu. At the beginning, we were um, going over the site chart. And I th we thought we actually noticed an error. But when I went back and looked at that, Commissioner Liu, that was for the first fiscal year, which was a half year. So I'm happy to answer any other questions the commission has at this time. I, I may have had the same question. I may have gotten answered. It wasn't clear when we were looking at the materials where the new locate where the additional funding is going to the, but I think you might have said that in your comments you're saying it's Sunnyside Midtown and uh, Sunset so yeah there specific community centers that people would recognize I mean that those well those are the neighborhoods that they're going in in the okay. site chart like on page two of the site chart you'll see that um, the um, Midtown Terrace one is at um, is at uh, a look or like the inner sunset is at St. Anne's Church. Okay. So it's on the site chart. Uh, that's what I understand yeah. now. By stating that, then it makes it clear to somebody where, okay. where the additional funding. All right. Thank you. And then besides the, you, you mentioned just in the brief descriptions, because you just don't have enough space, but the in terms of it sounds like they're um, act, you know, uh, physical programs, things like that, or they're also educational programs. So a variety of programs that, that this will fund for people with ver yeah, the, various interests and, and yeah, abilities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm sure um, uh, Marie Joblin could speak more to it. But the programs originally start out with the Always Active program, or yeah. a lot of them do. Yeah. And then as the program develops, they start bringing in new programming that the um, participants want. I see. So it's built on the, the needs and requests of mm -hmm. people there. Okay, thank you. Uh -huh. Thank you. You're welcome. I have a question. You said uh, that um, they exceed their unit of service by how many? 
Um, they, their contractual level uh, last year, hold on, I do have it. Um, hold on one second. Um, they, um, were, they actually served 107 consumers last year. And if you look at the first page of um, the, uh, I think they were supposed to do maybe 60. Okay. Is that it? Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, I'm glad that you are they're able to provide more service with the amount of money that we gave them. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm just glad to hear that. Okay. And I'm pretty sure there are other programs that exceed their unit of service too, which is uh, commendable. Okay. Um, any more questions from the commission? Any from the public? Okay. Um, is there a motion to pass this um, contract? So moved. Seconded. It's moved, second, um, uh, okay. Um, all in favor say aye. 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 Thank you. Pass. Uh, at this point, are there any more? Um, okay, we, uh, this is a recess regular meeting and we have to convene the uh, uh, closed section. We need to have public comment. Are there any public comments? No, we don't adjourn. We don't adjourn. We, no. SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
SFGovTV, San Francisco Government Television.
nothing, then we... No, no, no. Motion to close to end the meeting. No, that we have one, no, 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 we one have other piece of business to do here. What? There's a motion regarding whether to disclose the discussions during closed session. Yeah. I would advise not. And, um, and um, which I think is, in cases of, you know, performance review of individuals is, is pro forma. So, um, so, Madam Vice Chair, um, I would make a motion not to disclose the discussions during closed session pursuant to San Francisco Administrative Code Section 67.12A. Second. All in favor say aye. Aye. Public comment announcement. Okay. Motion to adjourn the meeting. So moved. <laughs> meeting adjourned. Oh, <cool>. last, <laughs> last official act.